Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, the life and arts podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, an FT editor in New York, and welcome back. Coming up today. I mean, the funny thing is, this movie is less weird yeah. in a way. Totally. <laughs> like the world got weirder. Yeah. Whenever I try and think about people who are making big art, um, like art and sort of capital letters about the <laughs> pandemic, the expression that always comes to my mind, it's like laughing at God. Like <laughs> we have so little sense of what is going to happen next week. Yeah. Welcome to season three of Culture Call. This season, we're doing things slightly differently for a few reasons. Firstly, my co-host Griselda Murray-Brown is on maternity leave, so it's just you and me. And secondly, but probably more importantly, we're living in what feels like a new world. Grizz and I have always had one criteria for choosing the people we interview on this show. Are they pushing culture forward? Are they naturally breaking new ground and taking us somewhere different? Of course, back in March, when the pandemic hit, pushing culture forward didn't mean what it used to. It almost didn't feel like it meant anything at all. Suddenly, culture as we knew it had stopped in its tracks and started taking on new, wild-looking shapes. As we stayed indoors, everything went online. Creators started responding differently, and so did we. In that moment, the role we felt we could play was just to bring people on to help us make sense of it and to give us comfort. We had psychologist Esther Perel, chef and cookbook writer Samin Nosrat, photographer Tyler Mitchell, and these are all episodes I would still recommend. After that season ended, I spent the summer walking and biking around Brooklyn and just thinking in a loop about how much we can even know about where we're going. We're processing so much, starting with the collective trauma of a global pandemic. It's just hard to visualize over a million human deaths. It's almost unfathomable. On top of that, we're living through this powerful civil rights movement, which has rippled across the world. We're feeling the effects of a climate crisis in real time, And we're facing an election here in the U.S. in which really our democracy feels at stake. So yeah, I mean, how could any of us know where we're going? And so as I jogged around Brooklyn with a face mask on and went to protests and washed and rewashed my hands, I had this question on my mind. What does it mean to live through history? What is our responsibility right now? I wrote a piece about it for the FT, which is in the show notes. And the question was really, what do we record when we're going through one of the most consequential periods of our lives? For that piece, I interviewed a disaster risk expert named Ryan Hagen, and he told me something that really stuck with me. He said, It's common to say that we have two pandemics. There's the pandemic of racial discrimination and inequality, and then there's the coronavirus pandemic. But actually, they're the same thing. The pandemic is an expression of existing inequalities, and it moves along the path of least resistance. That path is structured by inequalities in healthcare, housing, employment, wealth, police violence, medical treatment, so many things. But really, they're all the same pandemic. And what hit me most was that image of the virus moving along the path of least resistance, breaking open injustices and dysfunctions that were all there, that we were all living with, and that we'd be naive to say we didn't know, and that many of us have been fighting. The virus flowed freely along that path, and it cracked it open. And now we can't pretend it isn't there. A few weeks later, I was still trying to form this big question for this upcoming season. And this time I was talking through it with my close friends, Julie and CJ, at three in the morning, as you do. I put my recorder on so I wouldn't forget anything. And they reminded me of this Leonard Cohen song, Anthem. It's a protest song. It's a fight song. What's the art? What is it? It's about the line where he, the, uh, in front of Anthem, where he says, like, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Which I think is, like, one of the most beautiful lines of music ever written. Yeah. But, like, that's your point, right? Yeah. Like, the cracks have been exposed. Right. How do we let the light in? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Just think about it. Ah. Can we just Truly. listen to that song? That is the crux of it. Yeah. I, just I mean, that can't be... Is that the question? There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That feels like the crux. The virus has broken so much open, and that actually gives us a very unique chance right now to reimagine. We don't know where we're going, but we know we have this chance. So the question I landed on is this. What's possible now? What's possible now that would have seemed impossible before? And that's the theme. Welcome to the first of a six-episode season 
From now through the end of 2020, I'll be asking that question to different creators and cultural icons. I'll be exploring it with my brilliant FT Life and Arts colleagues. And I'll be exploring it with you. As you're listening, please reach out. Tell me how you're thinking about these questions and about this time. You can email me at culturecall at ft.com. You can message me on Instagram or Twitter at Lila Rapp. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at FT Culture Call. And if you want to make me really happy, you can email me a voice note. We'll be using some of those in the show. Okay, time for our first guest. My first guest is Miranda July. Miranda is a cross-disciplinary artist. She's a filmmaker, a writer, a musician, a creator of art projects, a creator of apps. And she's probably best known for her 2004 film, Me, You, and Everyone We Know. So much of Miranda's work is about how people connect with each other, often in very odd and tender ways. This year, she came out with two things. One is a self-titled monograph, a retrospective of her work so far. And I say so far because she's only 46 and we know there's a lot more to come. The second is a feature film. It's called Cajillionaire. It's out now. It stars Evan Rachel Wood, Gina Rodriguez, and Richard Jenkins. And there is a gentleness and an intimacy to it that is unmistakably Miranda July. It was filmed before the pandemic, but it speaks almost spookily perfectly to the loneliness of this time. Here's a clip from the trailer. You're addicted to them. They're my parents. In what sense? We split everything three ways. We have since I was little. I don't want to do it that way this time. Don't. You want us to be false, faking people. We don't make pancakes or wrap up little birthday presents or call you sweetheart or baby or do a little dance. Miranda has been very busy in quarantine. For example, on Instagram, she just made up an arts festival called the COVID International Arts Festival. And she asked her followers around the world to submit art that they'd made at home. And then she judged it and she gave awards. She also did a scavenger hunt across L.A. and she called it One Good, One Bad. So this was to raise money for the Queer Black L.A. Photography Center Fund. And she left good and bad gifts together around L.A. for followers to find around the city. My favorite was a pair of Prada shoes that she left next to an open box of cereal. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Afterward, I will be joined by FT Weekend writer Harriet Fitch Little. Harriet wrote a beautiful profile about Miranda for FT Magazine earlier this year. Okay, here we go. Enjoy. Miranda July, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Culture Call. Yeah, (laughs) glad to be here. You made this incredible movie, Cajillionaire, which I'm going to quickly describe to listeners. It's about an extremely unloving family of low-level con artists, and they're living on the fringes of society. The parents have trained their adult daughter, who's Evan Rachel Wood's character, to basically live off the grid with them. So they make enough money from little scams and thefts to survive. The parents also seem to have given their daughter, like, no modeling of secure attachment. (laughs) So that character, Evan Rachel Wood, who really is an adult, she interacts with the world in a way that feels kind of fragile and feral to me, and funny, um, and very confused. And over the course of the film, you get the sense that she just really wants to be loved. And also her name is Old Dolio, which I feel in itself sort of... (laughs) speaks to the ineptitude of her parents, but also is kind of sweet. (laughs) And, you know, she's sort of how I feel in some ways, tentatively, like coming out of lockdown into a world that still doesn't feel fully safe. I feel sort of fragile and feral and kind of confused (laughs) and wanting to be loved. Um, So I, I guess maybe let's start with why you chose old Dolio to spend all this time with. Can you tell me a little about what she represented to you when you were writing this? Right. You know, I work from my unconscious, at least Mm. for the first draft. So I don't really know where I'm going. I feel pretty out on a limb and like I don't have the answers. I mean, now that it's done, I, I reflect. But I know that this is the first movie I've written as both a mother and a daughter. Mm. And there's something about like when you're only a daughter, parenting has this sort of 
seamless quality. It's like the sky above. You can only shake your fist at it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and wonder. And then when you are a parent, you realize, oh, it, it was just a series of decisions I made in a particular time in my life. And so the child's reaction or rebellion or whatever seems sort of outsized. And I guess that to me seems true of all families. And I made this family kind of extreme, I guess. And it certainly gave me access to enjoy a ride of writing it that I might not have ever embarked on if I consciously knew I was going towards things that were so uncomfortable from both points of view as a parent and a child. Mm. And, And something maybe fundamentally flawed about the family unit, uh, about the roles, you know, like the cases in which there isn't love so much as the way that we do things. Aldolio's asked at what point, in what sense are they your parents? And she says, well, we split everything three ways. (laughs) And (laughs) it's sort of like, well, that's not love, but I can see how the answer is... (laughs) is often hard to put your finger on. What, yeah. what, how are they your parents beyond this perhaps biological fact of it? Yeah. And I should say, like, all that is sort of larger. The, the character of Old Dolio, who in some ways, I mean, not to herself, but I think to me writing it was this sort of long-haired butch archetype. Mm. And so kind of an ode to a lot of women I've loved and been in love with and that I had never seen as the hero of a mm. movie. I'd seen the man version, the kind of like Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain, like not articulate, but so appealing yeah, still very version. Hot, yeah. Um, yeah, wounded, but troubled, but you want to save them. Um, so not, not radical exactly as an archetype other than she's female body. Yeah, yeah. yeah I watched it with some friends and I was definitely attracted to old Dolio. (laughs) I'm curious to bring you back to the process of creating something from scratch. You know, I trust you as an artist to lead me into discomfort and bring me into a world that I never would have imagined on my own and then touch a desperately sensitive emotional nerve that I (laughs) didn't really know I had. And uh, you said in an interview with Jenny O'Dell recently that um, you're almost never working in autobiography or autofiction, but you're often finding the right way to not be literal. You said you're trying to get just the right pitch that might shatter that particular glass. And uh, I was thinking about that, and I feel like I don't know what that means but I do know what it means, and I know that you're doing it. And so I guess my question is, how are you doing something so intangible? What exactly are you doing to us? <laughs> what, what, what is that? What is that process? Well, right, I mean, I guess what it is is I, um, I do a lot of things without knowing why mm. uh, for quite a while, and I keep grabbing things and, you know, writing them down, things that that just catch my eye or my ear or feelings. And I keep writing them down and I'm collecting and they're sort of kind of coalescing into things. And I feel sort of like a detective, like, well, I don't know why, you know, like, like Melanie, Gina Rodriguez's character was in the movie before I exactly knew why, right. you know? I and, and so I'm like, I know I that writing this very sort of, conventional seeming character I know and then also if there's some joy as I'm going like the joy of writing her dialogue her talking to Richard Jenkins character like that was yeah uh, so fun you know and then and I kind of learned to trust that joy which often is leading me towards as you said like maybe something kind of uncomfortable but but it's the it's the mystery around it that allows me to go forward into it and I think maybe and from what you're saying, it does that for the audience mm. too, like keeps you afloat uh, long enough to, you know, float somewhere new. And and then I go back through a little bit more knowing and I'm like, okay, well, I don't totally buy that she would engage with these people. Like, who is she? Right. You know, like I'm solving problems again and again, or like, 
how could they afford even a space like that in LA would be too expensive. There has to be something wrong with it. <laughs> what could be wrong with it? Bubbles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe if it had like a horrible leak of some kind, mm. you know. <laughs> um, and then and then I'm actually thinking, you know what? This is in the case of this bubble, this endless cascade of bubbles that is a, a leak they, they have to deal with. At that point, I was like, this movie doesn't have a lot of beauty mm. in it. Like just what I consider beautiful, like a kind of luxurious abstraction, yeah. you know? So then I'm like, you get a free pass, Miranda. Whatever their problem is, like make it beautiful. Mm. It's like after, it's a mixture of like total freedom and intuitive looseness and then like real particular crafting yeah. and then just like reading dialogue again and again out loud um, kind of sanding it down with finer and finer grades of sandpaper mm -hmm. until I feel like it, I, I buy it, um, you know, and then, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, something like yeah, that. That's cool. There's a theme in Kajillionaire that the family is waiting for what they call the big one. And they mm -hmm. live in California and there are regular tremors and they're waiting for like the big earthquake, really, thinking it'll either kill them or just transform everything and they'll come out the other side and it's in some way more alive or something. And as I was watching that scene, I was thinking like, damn, 2020 is, <laughs> is 2020 is the big one. And I guess I'm curious, what was the big one to you before? Right. And what is it now? Right. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it was like, fear of death or fear of something so awful that you just couldn't endure yeah. it. And what if you were raised to live in fear of that at sort of a, a low but constant level all the mm. time? Then, then if it happened or, or you thought it happened, um, and I, that, that idea, of, first of all, of, of having someone think they died, like I, I had... Just to give you an example of where her ideas come from, because I happen mm. to remember this. I remember my friend, Sheila Hetty, she was saying, well, you know, you're always complaining and everyone's always complaining about having kids, like, and how hard it is. And it does sound really hard. And I don't get it. Like, what is the good thing? And I was like, okay, picture two souls in the afterlife. One of them had lived, had gotten a turn at being on earth. And the other one hadn't. And the person who'd been on earth was like talking about how hard it was, how many horrible, heartbreaking, desperate things had happened. And, and the other one was like, ah, oh, I'm so lucky. I never, never had to go yeah. through that. And the one who'd lived would be like, oh no, you don't understand. It was the greatest thing to get to yeah. live, you know? And that kind of stuck in my mind. And I thought like, how could you have in a movie, in a movie that was like grounded in reality, two souls talking in the afterlife. Like, what circumstances could I create? And I, I think you know the part mm -hmm. of the movie that it feels like that for a little while. Yeah. And I, I guess that is what we're all dealing with now is we did all fear something just so terrible. Like we've seen it in movies, we've read about it in history. Yeah. We all felt secretly sort of lucky. Maybe we can squeak through this life, you know, especially as like disaster is clearly on the horizon, yeah. you know, get through this lifetime without, you know, and it's like, but yeah. no. Um, it's funny. I think for some people in my life who seemed to sort of existentially fear or have more anxiety this time, was calming <laughs> for them. It had the opposite mm -hmm. effect of like, see, I told you. And that was sort of a relief. Yeah. <laughs> so Miranda, I'm making this show about culture. And as I do, I'm much more aware of release cycles and the churn and, you know, the game of that and how silly it can all feel now after this pandemic. And, you know, you made this film before the pandemic. I imagine there were things you thought you might say as you were promoting the film in the conversations you had with journalists and all that. And now it's coming into this different world. Yeah. And I'm curious how it feels to be promoting the film now. I mean, the funny thing is, this movie is less weird yeah. in a way. Totally. <laughs> like the world got weirder. Yeah. And so this movie now um, is 
perhaps right where we're at. Whereas before, maybe it was like my more my personal deal, mm. you know. I live kind of at extremes and and live and die by each day and am transformed. And that's just my own intense little crucible that I'm going right. through as a person. Um, but I have a kind of Victorian, like someone touches my hand and I'm like, yeah. whoa, you know. When there is touch in this movie, it's not like, you know, out and out sex. Right. When it played at Sundance, I, I remember thinking, like, I wonder if this is too subtle to be registering <laughs> as intensely as I would feel it. You know, and now I think those scenes are playing as they were intended or as they felt for me. And then, I mean, there are a fair amount of uncanny, uh, I mean, our, th- our, you know, Mr. Lonely is this Right. song in it that I, you know, chose so carefully and is so apt now. And someone pointed out to me the other day that the movie opens on the U.S. post office. And I was like, my entire life, that has been the most neutral institution you could, you know, have in a movie. It's like a blank space or something. And now it's so it's hot. Right. And not only that, they they rob it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like a kaleidoscope that just tilted and the whole picture changed. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting in a way that just pure disappointment wasn't interesting, you know? Like, there's only so long you can mourn not getting to go to Cannes, right. you know, before you're like, this is really pulling right, me down right. as a person. Right. Yeah. Th- this process of talking about it in this way and, you know, us doing this and, <laughs> um, and not being mm-hmm. able to go to Cannes and all that, like... How much of it did you feel like your values are upended or like what matters anymore, you know? Right. (laughs) I mean, you hunched in your closet. um, (laughs) Like, that's my people, you know? Like, this is much more relatable (laughs) for me than what I was poised to do. You know, I was girding myself Mm. up for... What always feels very um, disconnected from my reality, and I, I was sort of looking forward to it. Like I'm really going to play the game yeah. this time. You know, this movie's a little bigger, and and that the game is entirely fractured. And you know, I'm with a pretty big company. Focus Features or Universal and uh, worldwide, and just watching them kind of making it up like and my ideas are sort of as good as anyone's right now like a lot of things that I throw out they're like okay let's try that (laughs) Um, because this is all a first and of course they have a lot more business and health and safety things but on the creative side I kind of feel like it's been much more porous Mm. the process I've watched everyone around me have to be agile and to me, that's more creative, right? right? So, of course, I'm going to feel more comfortable, which is not to say it's ever good news to have a global pandemic. It's generally much, much harder for everyone. You know, in some ways, this pandemic, I feel like it's shown a light through all these cracks in our system. So much broke. So much seemed like it didn't matter anymore. And some stuff is just gone. And um, there's sort of the openness of the industry Mm -hmm. now, but for you, do you feel like the creative things that catch your interest are changing? What's Mm -hmm. in your radical imagination of what's possible? Uh, No, I mean, it's, it's like a new brain to be working with, which at first was really slow Mm. and in shock. Um, And even that is kind of, interesting right like to be collectively going through a trauma um like I I don't know exactly how to write about that or if I'm going to but it's it's historic and it allows you to look at your own brain and and other people you know at the underpinnings kind of of like what what being alive was Mm -hmm. you know like I, I mean you're really you, it's rare. Um, yeah, I mean, it was like everyone taking drugs at once, but with this horrible, um, I mean, just in, 
incredible sadness in the sense, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm slipping away <laughs> from myself. It's so big when there is something that's global. It's like, whoops, okay, back to me alone here. Um, <laughs> no, but it's true. Uh, I mean, and it's true. as we all are, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess, I mean, initially, I think, you know, my first impulse, for some reason I thought of like, well, yes, I'm disappointed but who I really feel bad for are all the young people who were about to maybe have their moment, mm. like their their first moment, which is kind of essential. Like what happens if you just skip that time and you come out and you're older and, you, you know, you missed your chance right. to be like come into the world, you know? Um, and I made this very quickly COVID International Arts Festival where I just took submissions in any medium and really looked at them all carefully and then and then awarded um, like five or six pieces, which, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how much m- me, <laughs> me choosing, how much that bestows upon these, but I, I guess I was both trying to like give a, a good, a joy to, to especially young people who'd been sort of robbed of that joy and also suggests that maybe we'll have to do this generally, like that the institutions will not be able to grant us what they did before. Yeah. Um, and then I made a movie. Like I, I was sort of like, wait, everyone is finally able to participate in one of my participatory projects. <laughs> I could really take this further. You're talking about one of the coolest projects I watched during this pandemic. It was something called Jopi. Yeah, I had always dreamt of making a movie, me giving out directions through Instagram and then other people acting out the scenes, which they did with their families, you know, in lockdown, according to my very specific directions on what they should wear and do. And then I edited that all together. It was the first of a three-part movie and then we had like a racial justice revolution over here which like I I just put a pin in that and worked on activism basically and uh, I look back and I so pride myself on following through but this is a time that changes so so dramatically that's churning so deeply that you actually would be out of it if you stuck to your original plan for very long, which begs the question what one does when one's writing a novel, (laughs) which is what I'm doing now. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I just can't stop thinking about how history will remember this time and how we're going through this monumental moment and also racial justice movement and also election and also, you know, environmental crisis with the fires and... Mm -hmm. And it feels sort of exciting and sort of destabilizing to not know how it will end, like to not be able to fully make sense of it yet and right. to like be creative in this time is interesting because you have to interpret it. Well, right. And how do you, if you're making things for people after the pandemic, who are those people? Right. Um, like, who are we? How long does this last? Who? Who will um, we be, you mean? How bad was it? Yeah. yeah. Like, did it ever go back? You know, those those are things that I kind of have to put out of mind in terms of long-term things. And I guess I hope, as with this movie, that if you dig your plow down deep enough that you'll get to some essential space that's under all of us, regardless what of what happens, like our emotional bones, kind of, so that maybe your work can continue to be meaningful or it shifts. Like what's resonant changes, but it doesn't completely fall out of um, focus entirely. Certainly making things quickly for people within this time is much easier. You know, it's like, just don't, don't even try to imagine, just stay within the the bubble of this. Yeah. Relatedly, I feel like it's an interesting time because you can't really disengage right now. There is no opt-out option. It feels like even not being engaged is an active choice. Posting about Black Lives Matter right. on Instagram and not posting about Black Lives Matter on Instagram are both active choices. Calling your representatives and not... Uh, 
I guess my question for you is, where do you find your purpose? I think a lot of us are trying to find ours. And so thinking about how you can use the influence that you have to do something um, or to contribute creatively or, you know, how do you choose it? That's for real tricky. I mean, I will say like right now there's an email chain for like an action, uh, uh, social justice, police brutality related action that I really was instrumental in starting, but everyone on that chain, I'm praying, knows that I have a movie coming out this week. (laughs) (laughs) And like, um, but I'm too embarrassed to say that's why I'm not participating in the chain right now, Um, even though it's really important and getting nigh the time where this will come to a head. And yet I also know that it's rare that a woman gets to make something out of her soul and have it fully financed and have it come out in this way. And there are battles happening on all different levels about who gets to speak and that I I can't, you know, I can't let, like shame is all too comfortable. Yeah. So I try not to sink into that. Day by day, I think what are the most important things to do? And sometimes they are sort of directly political. And I guess the odd thing as an artist is that when there's a day where you realize I could be creative today, I could make something out of Mm. nothing. What that entails is such a different process. It means trying to have a sense of vastness and freedom. Um, You know, I'm I'm homeschooling right now. So like even, even now, like I had to negotiate for extra time to do these interviews, you know, with my husband. It's all like this relay race. Yep. Each of us in our own way has to keep doing yeah. that. For, for me, that's the yeah. case. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. You know, a big part of this show for our listeners is cultural discovery, especially through this time. I'm just curious, sort of like what's speaking to you right now? seems like you're busy right. but, <laughs> but if um, I'm busy it's really kind of random what what I end up being able to read at this yeah. time I only have time to read right right before bed but um uh I um I read the John Giorno autobiography he's an American poet who passed away right after he finished this so not that long mm-hmm. ago and and was lovers with Rauschenberg and Andy Warhol and Jasper Johns. So you kind of get to move through this, you know, this time in a very intimate sexual way and somehow getting to inhabit a gay male sexuality of a, of a pre-AIDS time, a sort of pre-pandemic moment from before, and then watch him grappling with, that pandemic and with having to sort of shift who he was and in a way kind of deepen and go on like a more spiritual path. Um, it was, it was great. I mean, he's a total narcissist. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) That was one of my takeaways, but, um, he was, um, but it, it made for a good reading and I appreciated being able to like have so much anal sex um, (laughs) (laughs) while just sitting there next to sitting there in bed in a very um, like small life in the middle of a pandemic like it was it mixed things up in my head it kind of stirred the pot and got me thinking about sexuality in general and gender roles and sexual freedom that book was somehow the right thing at this time but you kind of don't know what is going to be yeah Yeah. I was told that if a book isn't speaking to you it may just not be speaking to you right now just put it away and (laughs) find it again right um Miranda, this is a real um, joy and honor. So thank you. Um, And thank you for giving us uh, this story, which really uh, made me feel much more connected. (laughs) So I appreciate it. Oh, good. Thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation. I am here with FT Weekend writer Harriet Fitch Little to unpack my conversation with Miranda July. Hi, Harriet. Hello. It's so nice to be here. It's so nice to have you. I'm just going to quickly talk a little bit more about 
why I'm so happy you're on. Not only did you write an excellent profile of Miranda at the start of quarantine, which I linked to in our show notes, but you're also the editor of Kinfolk, which is this gorgeous quarterly magazine and website that is also going to be profiling Miranda July in your winter issue. This is definitely her year of press, yes. (laughs) This is her year of press. I guess my first question is just about doing a remote Zoom interview in this era. You and I have had this experience of interviewing the same celebrity (laughs) over Zoom, and I wonder what it was like for you. Well, it's funny because now it seems incredibly run-of-the-mill that everything we do is remote rather than face-to-face, but I interviewed... Miranda July in March so I think it was the first big piece I'd done via Zoom and I was quite Mm. worried how you do get the intimacy and connectivity of profiles when you're doing it remotely but I mean as you'll also probably feel having now spoken to Miranda she's someone who lends herself to intimacy regardless of the medium and almost sometimes like despite the medium and the conversation we ended up having I would say was very intimate there was actually a point at which she started crying, not because I'd asked her a particularly horrible question, but just because I had unintentionally, I think, stirred up something quite painful for her in relation to her experience of giving birth. And that was a very strange thing to handle remotely because she walked off camera um, and I was left staring at this chair somewhere in LA wondering how I make it known that I'm there and she can take her time. And that was a moving part of the interview. It's interesting to hear how that felt to actually do. Yeah, well, it definitely assuaged any fears I might have about Zoom interviews being less intimate. (laughs) I also felt that with her and in general, with doing these podcasts, you have to find that intimacy faster. You just have to jump in and agree to go into this world like you both know the score and you're just going to go there together, even though you're strangers. And that's always the case with interviewing, but it feels even more so now. And Miranda July was like the perfect person to do that with, because even like in her movies, you just enter her world, you're in each other's brain. And then you say goodbye and you're sitting in your living room closet alone. (laughs) (laughs) I think definitely. And I think she also quite consciously constructs a lot of her public identity as a performance. So when you speak to her, she really does turn on this sort of Miranda July thing to a certain extent. And I don't think she would mind anyone saying that. Mm. And I think she sort of plays on it. For sure. It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about how she's described And I sort of wish that I had asked her more about it or had more time to ask her about it. But she has this very clear public perception of being quirky or her work being quirky or... No, uh, but I was so impressed that you didn't ask about that because literally I was listening to the interview and it's one of the first I've heard where that's not discussed, which I think must be so like refreshing for her in a way and also shows, I think, how... With this film, maybe things are moving on a bit in terms of how she's seen as this key cultural outlier. Yeah, I felt sort of like, this isn't going to be fun for us to talk about. (laughs) And I also did feel like a kajillionaire, like, it wasn't quirky. I mean... I guess the quirky thing, I don't know if it feels a little sexist to me. There's something about it that feels a little undervaluing. I think it probably comes from two places. And one of them is quite historical, which is that Miranda July made her first breakout film, You Mean Everyone We Know, in the sort of early 2000s when there was this huge wave of whimsical, shoegazy indie films. And she became a sort of figurehead for that movement. And that was around the same time that... Garden State had come out and Royal Tenenbaums had come out and Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) That's the era that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I think because she's so present in her art, she's such a figurehead. She doesn't hide behind the scenes. I think for quite obvious reasons, she became inextricably associated with that moment and perhaps didn't have quite the same opportunity to move on in the public eye as other people might. But I think, I don't know, what do you think? I feel like with Kajillionaire, she's done it. I think it's an incredible film. Yes, I think so too. Me and you and everyone we know feels so lo-fi. I mean, it always felt like that. It was almost purposely like that. But Kajillionaire is this like polished feature film. In the first few minutes, you think, oh my God, where am I? Like, Am I in this world? Am I in like this time? Am I in a world with people that are real? It's sort of destabilizing. And then suddenly, for me, just a moment happened and I was like, okay, I get this world. I'm in. Like, I am now, 
I have now entered into um, this alternate universe. I totally trust Miranda to drive me through it. And it was very profound. Uh, And I'm curious how you felt. I loved it. I mean, it feels like a sort of bigger film than her previous films. I think the main reason I loved the film is because I'm obsessed with scammers. And I think a lot of us are obsessed with scammers at the moment. There are lots of sort of grand theories. Is it because like there's a scammer in chief in the White House? But these sort of stories of the fake Russian heiress and these companies that turn out to be completely fraudulent, they seem to be really gripping something in the popular imagination. And yeah, it's working. Exactly. And in a way, Kajillionaire is a story about scammers. But I think what Miranda July does, which is really clever, is rather than sort of getting us to be interested in scammers because they're indicative of this excess of capitalism, you know, people who just want more and more and have no limits to their desire or no sense of morality. Um, Right, like the fire festival people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. This is kind of like the opposite case for scamming, which is (laughs) these people are almost scamming in protest at capitalism. I think they call it living off the land. So basically there is so much in society that, yeah, why not get your dinner by walking down a plane once it's landed and taking all the sandwiches (laughs) and bottles of water that have been left behind? (laughs) I know. It's like an act of resistance. It's a scamming as a, as a form of protest. It's amazing. So one big question for me has been how culture and art can help contribute to or witness or interpret this time while it's still happening when we still don't know how it'll end. And Miranda had said in our interview that if you're making things for people after the pandemic, who are those people? It's hard to know who future us will be and what we're going to need and what we're going to like. And that makes the art coming out of this pandemic right now feel... Interesting. I mean, the stuff that I like the most feels like unfinished drafts, like TikTok videos and experiments like that film Jopey that Miranda made it. I mean, I don't know how good the film was, but something about the process was cool. I've also been drawn to this Instagram account called New York Nico, which is this uh, street photographer named Nico Heller who is going from mom and pop shop in New York to mom and pop shop to introduce us to the characters of New York. I think like this is definitely the moment when small and unfinished comes into the spotlight, right? Yeah. It's weird because whenever I try and think about people who are making big art, um, like art in sort of capital letters about the (laughs) pandemic, the expression that always comes to my mind, which is weird because I'm an atheist, is like, it's like laughing at God. Like (laughs) we have so little sense of what is going to happen next week that the idea of trying to create any definitive or even partial narrative it just feels the wrong time there is no sort of end point to the experience that we are currently living through I think a lot of the lessons that we will see will be seen in retrospect and so I think it completely makes sense that a lot of the art that you and I are looking at and thinking oh this really like says something to me right now is these super short fragmented things that are happening often online. I read the piece that you wrote a couple of months ago about how history will remember this time. And I think it's sort of similar, right? I think what the experts were saying there is that actually our experience of this time will be constructed by the people who follow us, perhaps more than it will be by the people currently living through it. And like who we are in the future will change. And so how history will remember this time will change. Um, And that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. maybe it's not terrifying. Maybe it's less terrifying than the thought that, like, any creative person currently has a responsibility to say something definitive about what's happening. I was watching an interview with Miranda July and Jenny Adele, who I think we share a mutual fascination with. Definitely. I have seen that interview. Right. <laughs> And um, Miranda says that making art during the pandemic is like trying to describe the experience of falling while you're still falling. Mm. And that's not a very easy thing to do, which I think partly explains why she's taken this approach of making a few things in the moment. But she's clearly not trying to make some grand, all-encompassing project right now. Yeah. 
You know, Harriet, my big picture question for you is I'm curious how you think that culture is changing. You started a newsletter early on. It was called Covidio Culture. Um, And that was in March. It was really early and it was very helpful. It curated all of the digital cultural events that were happening around the Internet and shared them with us. So we knew what Momo was doing, what opera houses were doing and we knew what theaters were doing and then suddenly I don't know if you noticed this too but the the interest in what felt like this big digital art experiments seemed to sort of dwindle yeah absolutely and that's around when I stopped doing the newsletter <laughs> I didn't stop out of laziness I promise but I would say mm-hmm. for the first two or two and a half months and I was doing the newsletter um, I was getting all these replies to every email I sent out either saying that oh thank you so much for like these listings or people suggesting things that they'd come across that they were sort of consuming digitally and then after about two months interest just really dropped off the the way I understood it is that digital events were sort of really exciting for a moment because it did give you the opportunity to access things that you wouldn't normally be able to access in places that you wouldn't normally be able to get to. But I think after a couple of months, the limitations of the form reimposed themselves and people either went back to doing what they'd been doing all along or maybe engaged with things around them a bit more. Yeah. So what do you want from culture as we move through COVID? Well, I like the idea of things becoming... Not necessarily digital only, but more porous. I mean, with Miranda Mm. July, I think the way she released the trailer for Kajillionaire was she just put a Dropbox link on her Instagram stories and anyone could download it and share it to their followers, which is kind of cool. And the way she spoke about that was, you know, this is sort of one of her, um, I'm trying to use, trying to not use the word quirky here, but this is one of her sort of <laughs> more interesting ideas that perhaps previously a big studio would have said no to. And now they're sort of like, okay, you know, go for it. There are no rules anymore. Like if that's how you want to release your trailer, release your trailer that way. I also like the thought that all real world events from now on, I think will contain a digital component. I think it's quite unlikely that there'll be a big play that opens in New York that I won't be able to see somehow, Mm. which is nice. Increased access. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a big deal. The other thing that I'm curious about is going back to How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, that book that that you and I, that has both spoken to you and me, about unplugging and focusing on what's around you noticing the details. I feel like my cultural inputs are much more influenced locally now than they were before. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have you to thank for that because it was hearing you and Grizz talk about the book on the podcast that made me buy it. Oh, good. That's what we're here for. (laughs) I mean, she, she wrote it before the pandemic, but it's this incredible account of um, like the personal and also like political power that comes from I mean, logging off is a simplistic way of looking at it, right? But engaging more with the world around you. And I would actually say that beyond any hopes for digital fluidity and integration, like the main thing that I currently want from culture is localism. Mm. Um, I don't know about you, but I've become sort of quite obsessed with my local area and local history and I am kicking myself that I never went to my local theatre which is just (laughs) I mean because you're in London you know there are so many amazing theatres why would you go to like the small community theatre down the road right but now really that is the main sort of culture I am interested in and want to engage with because I think there is something about the pandemic that's drawn us offline and closer to the things that inhabit the same physical spaces us if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It really does. I, I feel that way too. I mean, I think I care more about my local community and local politics and local artists than I ever did. Not only do I know them all now because I never leave my neighborhood, <laughs> um, but I also just feel sort of like the pandemic has forced me to sort of look up and around, which is what Jenny O'Dell sort of asks us to do in this book. Suddenly I'm like noticing the puppet playhouse near my apartment <laughs> or our local character uh, who is this a man who bikes around Brooklyn with a soccer ball 
balanced on his head, <laughs> who maybe I may not have noticed in the past. I mean, I had never noticed until now, but now is a cultural touch point for me. He's sort of like a, a local performance artist that like gives me a lot of comfort. Right. And now you sort of like want those interactions, whereas before you shut yourself away from them getting to the place where the real culture was happening, right? Right. <laughs> and yet that culture is like, in some ways, much more meaningful. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, the bitter irony for both of us when we're talking about all these new local interests we have in terms of culture and art, in terms of financing, those are probably going mm. to be the same organizations that struggle to get back on their feet after the pandemic. Yeah, no one's walking into that puppet theater right now. I mean, hopefully our, our newfound appreciation for them will help protect them in some <laughs> way, but I guess we'll have to see. Harriet, thank you so much for joining me. This was um, so thought-provoking and such a pleasure, and um, I hope you can come back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. I would love to hear what you thought of today's episode and your thoughts on the theme. You can continue the conversation with us on Twitter at FT Culture Call. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp, and you can always email the show at culturecall at FT.com. And if you liked the podcast, I have a request for you. Think of one or two friends who you think would really like it too and let them know about it. Or post this episode to your Instagram stories or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These things all make a huge difference and really help new listeners discover the show. I'll be back in two weeks' time with Ai Weiwei, an artist who needs very little introduction. You'll also want to keep an eye on the feed for a special bonus drop of a conversation I did with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Natasha Trethewey about her book Memorial Drive. It was awesome. She's just a brilliant mind and spoke so perfectly to this moment. The FT is doing a lot of events that were once in person, but now, of course, are virtual, and that means they're accessible globally, which is great for you and me. This is an example, but the next one is called FT Next Gen. It's on October 22nd, and it's organized by FT Weekend. A link is in the show notes, and we have a special discount offer code for you that gives you a little bit of money off. That code is NEXTGEN2020. I've been Lila Raptopoulos. Special thanks to all the people who talked through the concept of this season with me, including Amy Keene, Renee Kaplan, Julie McMahon, CJ Knowles, Vanessa Raptopoulos, Miles McAfee, and my therapist, Carol. Thanks, Carol. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood at Scenery Studios, and our incredible new theme music was composed by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie.